Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Deaf. No one really likes to talk about it, and no one really likes to think about how they might actually exit this world. So it's easy to exploit that discomfort through comedy. Bring out your dead! As in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where Eric Idle's character makes the rounds collecting victims of the plague. Bring out your dead! Here's one. Nine friends. I'm not dead! What? Nothing. Here's your nine friends. I'm not dead! Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look... Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy! I feel happy! Ah, oh, thanks very much. Oh, See you on Thursday. Right, right. Okay, I'm sorry. I will omit no opportunity to use Monty Python, especially not when they might lighten the tone of a dark topic. And today's topic is potentially dark. We're going to talk about death and the right to die. I know that might sound bleak, but it's not. Death is something we all have to face and deal with, whether we want to or not. And films can help us face death in all its various incarnations, whether it's dealing with a loved one at the end of his or her life, facing a debilitating illness, or coping with grief or loss. Film can seriously address these issues through drama and documentary, or use humor and absurdity to allow us to step back and laugh at something that scares us. We're going to talk about films that in one way or another help champion ideas about the right to die and death with dignity. And here to talk with me about right to die films is the president and founder of the San Diego Hemlock Society, Faye Gersh. So welcome. Good morning. How are you? (laughs) I am good. And this is a topic that really fascinates me because I'm a fan of horror. But the thing that scares me the most is not death and Freddy Krueger and Jason, but it's things like Alzheimer's or, you know, dealing with a terminal disease. I mean, these are kind of like real world horrors. But before we start talking about these films, I just want you to talk a little bit about the Hemlock Society and let people know what this group, this organization is. Well, we started 31 years ago. Our, uh, we were at that time a chapter of the National Hemlock Society, which no longer exists because in 2004 it merged with another organization. We are actually the remaining one of 90-some chapters that were in the United States. We are and have been actually the most active chapter in the country of the Hemlock Society, which believes that people should have a choice in how they die They should die consistent with their own values, beliefs, and preferably the law. And if they choose to have a gentle, peaceful, nonviolent death with their loved ones present, that should be an option for them. And that's uh, hard to achieve. It sounds like a simple goal, but it's not. And our objective is to educate the San Diego community about their end-of-life options. A lot of really bad deaths could be avoided if people knew what they could do to, to end their suffering. And remind people where the Hemlock Society draws its name from. 
<laughs> well, the death of Socrates is an old Greek story. He was given the death penalty for corrupting the minds of the youth of Athens. And um, he had his choice of drinking the hemlock or being in exile. And to him, being in exile was worse than death. And there are things worse than death. So he drank the hemlock, which was the choice at the time. Not a good way to die. I don't recommend it, even though hemlock is very plentiful and you can find a lot of it and you can boil it and make a tea. But it's like ALS in one day. Your feet get paralyzed, your legs, and ultimately your lungs. So you can't breathe. Not highly recommended death. So we're always looking for better ways to die, peaceful ways to die, ways that you don't suffer. So we try to tell people uh, what their options are. So we have meetings every month, and we alternate between having serious speakers. So the next speaker will be uh, on the End of Life Option Act, a law that we now have in California. And then on the even months, we have uh, our film series. We call it a film festival. It's not happening all at once. We just show a Right to Die movie, and we discuss it on the third Sunday of the even months. They're all free. They're open to the public. And we hope that people will stay to discuss these films because they all present different aspects of dying, which we don't generally have conversations about in, in real life. And what led you to want to include film as a component of your meetings and your, your group organization? Well, I guess during the course of my life and yours, too, we've seen some very excellent and unusual films about death and dying. And I started to accumulate a list. And to me, they're so educational because they depict actual stories of, well, fictionalized people generally, but not always, in situations which uh, people encounter all the time. The public doesn't know much about them and doesn't have a chance to discuss what those situations are. So some of those things are like uh, a more of the amazing French movie. We're uh, depicting an older couple where he is taking care of his wife with many strokes. She says she wants to die. He won't permit it. And finally, without with giving the whole thing away, of course. He puts a pillow over her head to end her suffering. And his, too. And we really don't know what happens after that. But that, to me, I know you love horror pictures. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a horror picture. Oh, yes. Such a struggle with this loving couple who have such a lovely life in Paris in this lovely apartment, and they play the piano, and they go to concerts, and they do all these things until first she has a mild stroke, and then she has a series of them until she's finally bedridden, and he takes care of her all by himself, won't let anybody in, including the children, and they don't ever have the conversation. They don't ever talk to each other beforehand or even during this nightmare about what both of them would want if it came to that. So she says she wants to die. He won't permit it. And finally, he smothers her. What a story that is. It's, um, we've showed it a couple of times, and it's so incredibly moving. And then on the other side of the thing is Soylent Green, which is um, you know, Charlton Heston's great mm -hmm. uh, scene where he says Soylent Green is people. But that's not relevant to our, our story is here is this 
unbearable planet, which human beings have ruined with overpopulation and no trees and no rivers and no nothing, hardly any food, hardly any protein, except on Fridays where they distribute Soylent Green. But the thing about this is Edward G. Robinson, his last film actually, finds life so intolerable that he can, without shooting himself or hanging himself or doing the things that people seek to do when they find life intolerable, goes to what looks like a clinic, very pleasant, very nice. A sweet young thing comes up to him. May I help you, sir? He says, I want to go home, which means I want to die. And your favorite color? Orange, I guess. Music? Classical. Huh. Light classical. <laughs> I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Sign here, please, Mr. Roth. A full 20 minutes. Oh, certainly. Guaranteed. Then he goes to a beautiful room, and then there's beautiful scenes in front of him of Earth as it used to be with trees and rivers and butterflies and flowers. And another sweet young thing comes in, and she gives him a shot in the arm. And he gradually fades away, as you can do in Canada now, <laughs> not quite under those circumstances, and dies. And then, of course, the rest of it is the political aspect that he, he gets uh, recirculated into a Soylent Green wafer. But we hear from people all the time is, what's a simple way to die? We have complicated ways to die, and I can talk about those. But what's a simple way to die? And people would like something like this. And, of course, we all believe in suicide prevention, and we don't want people just walking in off the street and saying, okay, off me. But some people would like that. They would like it to be much simpler than it is now, much more peaceful, much more pleasant. So that's Soylent Green on the sort of the other end of the spectrum of Amour. And then it's not always serious and, and grim because there's like this Israeli movie, The Farewell Party, that is such a delight and so serious and so sad at the same time. That takes place in a retirement community like I live in. And they uh, take care of each other, and they find out that one of their members is in the hospital section, dying a terrible death, asking for help to die, saying he doesn't want to live anymore. His wife is desperate. She doesn't know what to do. And so this group gets together, and they try to figure out something. And one of them is a veterinarian, and he knows about how to help people die peacefully, at least help dogs die peacefully. And he works with somebody else who invents, and they talk about Jack Kevorkian's uh, methods, and they talk about Philip Nitschke, who invented this uh, computer system. And they invent something, and they go stealthily in the middle of the night with the wife, and they give him a peaceful death. And then people find out that they have this team of people who do this, and they're in great demand, people begging them to help. And it goes on to talk about one of the members of the team who is uh, the wife of one of the men who is demented, getting demented. And the hilarious scene, sad scene, is she can't figure out what to wear to dinner and she shows up stark naked. And her husband ushers her out really quickly. And then they, she doesn't want to ever leave the room again. She's so embarrassed. And so her husband says, let's just go down, take a walk by the pool. So they go down there, and they open the pool cabana door there, which he knows about. And there are the, all the friends there, stark naked. 
eventually they help her die because her choice is to go to a nursing home somewhere and she goes there to see what it's like and it's horrible. So she chooses to have a peaceful death and they help her. And so there she is among friends having a peaceful death. It's all very stealthy. And if it happened in my place, I don't think it would it would all be locked up probably because a lot of these retirement communities don't like to talk about death or how to have a peaceful death. It's a taboo subject. So I love that movie. I just showed it recently at a conference. It's just a wonderful movie where you're half laughing and half crying. So do you feel that film is kind of a means to get people to like jumpstart a conversation about this, that it gives them something where maybe they don't have to talk about themselves, but they can talk about the film and then kind of come around to maybe their own stories? It definitely is an educational medium. And it's interesting how universal it is. And we show films from India, from Italy, from France, from Israel, because uh, Mexico, because this is a universal problem. People get old, they die. It's very rare that people die peacefully and sweetly, like in the movies, well, <laughs> those movies, with their families there. They usually die now in hospitals, suffering. Even with hospice care, they still suffer. And it seems to us that that's not necessary, and it seems to the law as well, because now the law is over the last 30 years that I've been involved has changed radically, so that people have a lot more choices One of the most common choices, I think, is to stop treatment, which wasn't always a universal right. It only happened uh, in 1990 when the Supreme Court in the Cruzan case decided that every American has the right to refuse any unwanted medical treatment, even if it should lead to their death, including, and that that was the first time, including food and hydration. So we have some movies about people dying that way, Uh, Not enough about people just stopping treatment, but that is an option that many people use. Stopping chemotherapy, stopping dialysis, stopping uh, anything that is life-supporting but uh, cumbersome to people, and just dying. Well, not just dying. They should have very good care when they die that way. Well, it seems like there are a lot more issues raised now because we have science and technology and medicine that can extend life and can do some amazing things, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee you a level of quality of life that you might feel is what you want. But you do have this ability to deal with things that, you know, 50 years ago we might not have been able to extend someone's life. Right. And a lot of our meetings are about those things. We had a doctor, for example, who wrote uh, How Doctors Die, a small paper in a small journal, but it attracted a lot of attention, Kenneth Murray, and he came down from Los Angeles to talk about that, which is now backed up by data that doctors don't want all these things. When they die, they don't want to be hooked up to things. They don't want every miracle drug administered to them. Most people want to die at home, and doctors choose to die at home. But people, I think, don't know that. Loved ones don't know that. And often there's a religious push to have everything, everything done, even in the most dire illnesses like advanced dementia. Some people want everything done. And people can make their choices now. Uh, We have meetings all the time, and we're going to have more in beer halls and death over dessert, and places where people, young people, can fill out their advanced directives. 
because actually all the history of the Right to Die movement in the last 30 years has been made by young people. I don't want to go into the details, but Karen Quinlan was the first uh, woman to, young woman in her 20s to pass out at a party, never to regain consciousness, but still living because she had uh, she was resuscitated and her parents wanted her eventually to be able to die by removing the ventilator that was she was dependent on and they took it to court they were maligned they were serious devout catholics but they could see that this was not what her daughter that their daughter would want finally the new jersey supreme court ruled that they could make decisions for their daughter and she was taken off the ventilator but not off the feeding tube and so she lived another 7 years but out of her case came the decision, the um, law passed by the the, the uh, California legislature allowing living wills. So you could write down in advance what you would want. So you wouldn't have to take your case to court. There it would be in your own writing, witnessed. And every other state thought California was crazy, as you know, people as still think. As they frequently think. do. Yeah. So 40 million of us were all crazy here, but we like to have our say about what happens to us. And then, of course, that caught on. So everybody, every state has a living will. And then California, again, not a result of a particular case, but realizing that you can't speak for yourself all the time, passed the Durable Power of Attorney for Health Care Act, which allows you to designate someone to speak for you about your health care wishes if you can't speak for yourself. And again, we were the first state ridiculed a horrible derision about, you know, why am I appointing my son to be my health care power of attorney when he's going to inherit all my money? This would lead to terrible abuses. Well, most of us thought the abuse would be somebody else speaking for us instead of the person we designated. So that happened here. There are films that do deal with that issue of somebody who is either on life support or in a situation where they don't want to continue. And one of the films you mentioned that you liked was The Sea Inside, which was uh, Javier Bardem starred in. And it's about... uh, A real person. Yeah, a real person. Ramon San Pedro. Pedro, Yes. So that's a film that raises these issues within uh, an artistic form to help people. Well, of course, he was mentally competent, Mm -hmm. but he was a quadriplegic and many people in the disabled community object to that kind of depiction, the depiction that disabled people want to die, which that's not true, and it doesn't say that. And in fact, in the film, there is a disabled priest that comes, also a quadriplegic, who says you can live a good life. But Ramon San Pedro, the real Ramon San Pedro, a very articulate, relatively young man, talks about why he doesn't want to live that way, even if he could. Well, he can, of course but he doesn't want to continue to live. And the Spanish Right to Die Society was the one that finally helped him in a very interesting and stealthy way. They had 11 people around him, all doing different things, part of helping him die. And he died by drinking sodium cyanide, or potassium cyanide, I can't remember which, in a, in a glass. So somebody mixed it, somebody poured it, somebody handed him the glass, Somebody handed him the straw. Somebody videotaped the whole thing. I saw the whole thing. And the point of that was the authorities didn't know what to do. They didn't know who was responsible. They couldn't arrest all 11 people on no grounds at all. So that's what they did. And sometimes it's necessary to go around the law or even break the law. That's why the law in Holland is so permissive, because for a long time, people broke the law there. 
And the, the authorities, the judges said, uh, guilty, but because they followed a higher authority, we're not sentencing them. And that's, that's what happened in Holland. Uh, the first person was a young woman, Dr. Posma, who helped her mother die. And she told the police what she had done. She was sentenced, found guilty, and never, never given a sentence. And out of that came judicial guidelines that guided the Dutch practice, which is now, of course, the most liberal practice. There's Jack Kevorkian. There's a wonderful film, You Don't Know Jack, which I would call a docudrama. With Al Pacino. Al Pacino was wonderful as Jack yeah. Kevorkian. What we're doing here today is groundbreaking. You know a better word for groundbreaking? Good morning, everybody. This is the Morning Drive Show. Today, it's a uh, special edition. It's the Morning Guy Show because of my special guest, Dr. Jack Kevorkian. You might know him better as Dr. Death. If a person's allowed to die, you do it quickly, painlessly. You don't let them wither away. What would you charge for this procedure? You don't charge people for something like this. Jack, they're threatening to bring you up on murder charges. Have the gall charge Dr. Kevorkian tonight. Bring it on. You're not a local quack anymore. No. America's quack. America's quack. <laughs> I bailed you out. Let's go. What kind of lawyer does that? I should fire you. Have you no religion? Have you no God? He is leading society into an age of enlightenment, you idiots. Who cares what people think? It's what my patient feels. And remind people who Jack Kevorkian was in case they don't know. I hate to think that he is a forgotten man. <laughs> I even wrote a play about uh, St. Peter versus Jack Kevorkian in which he goes to be judged whether he goes to heaven or to the other place. But uh, You Don't Know Jack, yes, was, uh, I think, made for TV film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very good depiction of what Kevorkian stands for, how sort of squirrely a guy he is. He's a little strange guy. You know, he lives on Social Security. That's all. He buys all his, he did buy all his clothes in uh, Salvation Army. Uh, He lived in his lawyer's apartment. And all that's depicted in the film very wonderfully. His first case was Janet Atkins, a woman who had early Alzheimer's, who came from um, Oregon for his help. And he recommended to her that he, she go back for experimental treatment in Washington State, which she did for six months. And she was worse when she got to him. But he did help her. And the rusty old Volkswagen van that is so legendary, well, maybe not to your audience anymore, but so she died in this rusty old van. And people thought that was terrible. But Jack couldn't find any place, any home for her to die in. And her husband, Ron said that was wonderful that he did this. And it was, as far as I know, his only um, Alzheimer's case. And that's such a serious thing, which brings me to the movie Still Alice. I hate that this is happening to me. I hate it too. But we have to keep the important things in our life going. We have to try, or we're going to go crazy. I know, I know, John. I am, I am sorry, but I don't know what I would have been like at a dinner party. I might not be able to remember names or answer simple questions. I mean, never mind get through an anecdote. I think you're doing great recently. Relative to what? I wish I had cancer. Don't say that. No, I do. I mean it. I mean, I wouldn't feel so ashamed. When people have cancer, they wear pink ribbons for you and go on long walks and raise money and you don't have to feel like some kind of a social... I can't remember the word. 
again, is an amazingly accurate depiction of early Alzheimer's. And there is a person, well-educated, insightful, knows all about these neuropsychological things, who goes on a jog one day and gets lost in her own on her own campus, can't find her way home. And finally she pieces together that she needs to see a neurologist or somebody. I got something wrong with me. What are you talking about? I've been seeing a neurologist. You've been seeing a neurologist, why? They think that it might be early onset Alzheimer's disease. Honey. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. I want to tell you because I don't know anything for sure, but I've been doing all these tests and I'm really scared. Uh, Allie, that is completely insane. I got, I got lost while I was running on campus a while ago, and I can't, I can't remember appointments, words. Honey, we all have memory lapses. That's a sign of getting older. The other day, I couldn't remember the word. Um, <sighs> Glucose. It's not like that. It's like something just drop, drops out under me. But there is no diagnosis yet. Yeah. And they tell her that she has dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. And that the prognosis is pretty poor. Finally, she discusses it with her husband. But not in the way we would like to have family discussions. It's not Right. She doesn't call the family together and say, this is what I have. This is what I would like to happen to myself. I don't want to live beyond this point or whatever point she designates. And I want you to understand that I want to die. She doesn't say that. Nor does, you know, in Amour, do they have that family conversation or even with each other. That's a terrible mistake. She uh, finds the medication somewhere. She lies to her doctor and she gets the right medication, which is not an easy thing to do. And she writes herself a letter on the computer saying, if you can't answer these questions, then the medication is up in the night table drawer. Take it all. Hi, Alice. I am you. And um, I have something very important to say to you. So I guess you've reached that point, the, the point where you can no longer answer any of the questions so this is the next logical step. I'm sure of it. In your bedroom, there's a dresser with a blue lamp. Open the top drawer. In the back of the drawer, there's a bottle with pills in it. It says, take all pills with water. Now, there are a lot of pills in that bottle, but it's very important that you swallow them all. Okay? And then lie down and go to sleep. And don't tell anyone what you're doing. And in the book, she is interrupted by her husband who says, what are you looking for? And she says, my meds. And she doesn't even know what they're for anymore. He says, I have your meds. And you take them. And these meds for Alzheimer's are useless anyway. But she forgets the whole plan because she didn't remember it in the first place. There are people all over the world working on how you can avoid this kind of fate because we don't know after her husband leaves her, and after her estranged daughter moves in to take care of her, what happens and how she deteriorates. And it's invariably a nightmare. What's it like? Like, what does it actually feel like? Mm, well, 
it's not always the same. You know, I have uh, I have good days, bad days, and on my good days, I can you know almost pass for a normal person. But on my bad days, I feel like I can't find myself. Um, I've always been so defined by my intellect, my language, my articulation, and now sometimes I can see the words hanging in front of me and I can't reach them and I don't know who I am and, and I don't know what I'm going to lose next. Sounds horrible. Thanks for asking. So Alzheimer's is um, incurable, no treatment, insoluble at this point, and ways out of it are difficult. We plan to have a full-day conference on Alzheimer's maybe in November to talk about what there is available. There's a brand-new advanced directive out that would... Maybe. <laughs> we don't know really what the courts would say about this. Maybe ensure that you wouldn't get fed or hydrated when you reach whatever point you designate. There's another advanced directive that was just published by a journal of the American Medical Association. So you can try to do these things in advance. You must have the family conversation, which she didn't have and still Alice. Another horror story. I mean, really a horror story, as dementia is. Dementia is even worse, I think, than most terminal illnesses because you not only lose your physical uh, abilities, but you and you you're not necessarily in pain, but you lose your personhood, your cognition, your ability to make choices, and to remember what your life was like and who who your loved ones are. So it is a nightmare, and I would like to see more conversations about how you can end this. We all talk about research on Alzheimer's. That's wonderful. We hope it, there's a cure. We hope there's a vaccine. We hope there's medication that, that does something more useful than the medications now. But let's talk about people who want to die. Our next movie is called The Event, and that's about, it's an old movie with Olympia Dukakis as the mother of an AIDS patient. I can stop this, Lila. Please don't let all this be in vain. To me, my son was a hero. Just how many of these parties have you had? There was so much love in that room. Sometimes people die alone. This was beautiful. And they figured out that they can die and they can get doctors to help them. And of course, these doctors were not following the law. There was no law. Well, <clears throat> the law said you can't do this. And so in the event, uh, this young man has AIDS, and he does have the conversation with his mother, Olympia Dukakis, that he wants to die, <clears throat> and he wants to have a party and invite his friends. And she's horrified. It's her son. She said, no, don't do this. And no, I won't come to your party. But she comes. And eventually he needs some help, and she helps him. It's very moving. And we have to really thank all these um, young men primarily. It's not a young men's epidemic anymore. It's different. <clears throat> but who had the courage to find doctors who would help them.
And that was the beginning, really, of the right to die movement in this country. Not officially. Officially, I would say it started in 1980 with the founding of the Hemlock Society. That's probably not even true either, because there was a right to die group in New York that started before that. In fact, there was a law introduced in the Ohio legislature, I think, in 1910 for euthanasia, which didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it didn't start with the Hemlock Society, but that was a big impetus. But the AIDS epidemic really made a difference in how people thought about their lives. There were a lot of things that brought this to our attention. Kevorkian was one. And then it disappears from our attention, and we stop thinking about it anymore. So... um, Fortunately, there are groups like the Hemlock Society, like other right-to-die groups, that continue to think about it and fight for better laws. So now in California, we have the End-of-Life Option Act that we've had now, it'll be two years in June, that does permit assisted dying by a doctor. And that was is a big step forward. And again, that was prompted by a young woman, Brittany Maynard, who had an inoperable brain tumor. And she was living in California with her mother and then her husband. And she went from doctor to doctor, and they said they beat around the bush. But ultimately, she figured out that there was no hope, that her symptoms of having seizures, of forgetting things, of not being able to walk sometimes would get worse, uh, headaches. And she decided that she wanted to die rather than go through all that, because she would have to be in an institution or a hospital or something. So she and her husband, her newlywed husband, and her mother and stepfather went to Oregon, where they had the law. We didn't have it then. And she got a doctor who agreed that she was terminally ill, and a second doctor who agreed that she was terminal and competent, and prescribed the medication that she took. She decided she would die on November 1st, 2015. And she had her family there, and she fortunately recorded, made tape recordings of her wishes and why she's doing this, which were played uh, later that year to the California legislature, who finally did pass the End of Life Option Act, thanks to her courage. My name is Brittany Menard. I am 29 years old and I am terminally ill. The inevitability of death is universal. The widespread support and overwhelmingly positive response to my story represents our community is ready to have a new conversation about death. The decision about how I end my dying process should be up to me and my family under a doctor's care. How dare the government make decisions or limit options for terminally ill people like me? Unfortunately, California law prevented me from getting the end-of-life option I deserved. No one should have to leave their home and community for peace of mind to escape suffering and to plan for a gentle death. For the vast majority of people, that is not even a remote possibility because of the cost of moving, the inconvenience to family, and the time it takes to change residency status, find new doctors, confirm eligibility, and obtain medication. This must change. Every one of us will die. We should not have to suffer excruciating pain, shame, or a prolonged dying process. 
the laws in California and 45 other states must change to prevent prolonged involuntary suffering for all terminally ill Americans. I mean, I'm glad I live in a state, in a, in a country that respects life. I'm glad we have suicide prevention clinics. I mean, I was a psychologist. I worked with a lot of suicidal people who fortunately didn't do it because suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, usually. But when people want to take their own life because of their suffering from illnesses that cannot be cured or treated or prevented or anything, then that's a different story. And uh, we can talk people out of making that choice, and families often do. The government certainly tries to do it. But people who have that choice now uh, are glad they have the choice. It's not an easy choice in California. At the same time our law went into effect in June of um, 2016, the Canadian law went into effect all over the whole country. So it's a very interesting comparison uh, because we have 40 million people in California and they have 40 million people in the whole country. But they had a Supreme Court ruling the year before was unanimous, nine to zero, that assisted dying should be decriminalized. And they made many other provisions that it should be open to this kind of people and that kind of people. And not only doctors should be able to do it, but nurse practitioners. And it should not only be by self-administration that is swallowing some terrible drugs, but also by lethal injection, the way Kevorkian did it in his final case. And... Uh, so now that's the law of the land in Canada. So when we looked at the law after a year, last June, we saw in <clears throat> California probably, we don't have accurate data because they didn't have the tallies at that time, but maybe 200 cases in California in that year. And in, Ca in Canada, 2,000 cases. It's so much easier in Canada. First of all, people would prefer a lethal injection, which you can get in a hospital. Here you can't even get it in a hospital. But also um, the medication, which here costs a lot of money, is free under the health system there. Doctors are paid under the health system to do this. It's such a much better um, idea and they're still pushing the Death with Dignity Society in Canada and other right-to-die organizations in Canada are pushing to expand that law because the law of right now doesn't even comport with the Supreme Court decision in 2015. So they're trying to expand it to include um, minors, to include psychiatric patients under certain circumstances, and to include something for dementia when a person loses competence because the two provisions of the law here in California are the person must be mentally competent and terminally ill. And, of course, in Alzheimer's or dementias, some of the dementias, the person is not terminal. The person will die, but it could take seven to ten years. So some solution has got to be found, and I hope it's research. I hope it's a cure. I hope it's a prevention. But if it's not, it's got to be some kind of peaceful way that a person can decide when they're going to die. We've been talking about mostly narrative films, fictional or based on real incidents. But can you also recommend a few documentaries that are good on this topic? Well, How to Die in Oregon, mm -hmm. uh, which was shown on TV several times. I think that was a made-for-TV documentary, too. 
um, shows how the law works in Oregon. The Oregon, Oregon was the first state to pass an assisted dying, medical assisted dying law. So that model is the model we have now in California. It's um, where you re- make a request to a willing doctor. The willing doctor is very tricky, who decide, who agrees with the second doctor that you do have six months or less to live, which is also very tricky, and that you're mentally competent, which is a little bit tricky. And then uh, there's a 15-day waiting period, at the end of which you get a prescription for a lethal medication. It's usually second all, and that price of the second all is now going up to $4,000. There's an alternative now worked out with four different drugs that costs about $600. So the doctor writes that prescription. It goes to a, a compounding pharmacist who will send you the medication after you, when you've decided you're going to use it, and you fill out an attestation form, a lot of forms here, that you're going to use it within 48 hours. And then uh, you die very peacefully. You you lose consciousness almost immediately, and you die within... There's a variability. The average is a half hour, but it can take up to 12 hours. So that's the procedure here, and uh, it's, even in Oregon, 20 years later, not used by very many people, absolutely less considerably less than 1% of the people who die in Oregon use that law. In the Netherlands, it's uh, a little under 5% of people who choose to use euthanasia. That's called euthanasia when you get a lethal injection, choose a lethal injection. What we have here is self-administration. So in, in, in the Netherlands, it's used much more widely because it's a much broader law and still expanding, still expanding. Because people want this and the population that most wants it, I think, is what's called, um, well, there was a society in England called SORS, which is Society for Old Age Rational Suicide. And it's people who have led a completed life. They're ready to go, and they would like to die peacefully, not shoot themselves, not hang themselves. So the Dutch have been working on that for a long time, and they do permit it there. One of the films that we're that I was going to talk to you about is, um, which you probably don't know, is called Right of Way, with Betty Davis and Jimmy Stewart. You see, we're not worried about the house, the lawn these days, or, or the cat's balls, or the weeds. We aren't worried about any of it. But you have to be, Mother. You have to be. Well, I'm sorry, we aren't. Isn't that right, Titty? Yes, yes, that's right. Thank you. We know we haven't been attending to these things. We're not blind, and we haven't forgotten. In fact, it's just the opposite. We have chosen not to. Well, you have no choice in some things, Mother. You simply... Shut up and listen to me. All right, Mother, I am sorry. Well, that's better. We wish to do exactly as we please now. And in our opinion, we're entitled to. After all, there isn't much time. Oh, Mother, you've been saying that for years. Well, this time is the truth. Well, it's always been the truth. Not like this time. Isn't that so, Teddy? We've lived together, and now we're going to die together. What do you mean? What are you saying? Your father is saying we're going to kill ourselves. He wanted you to know. (laughs) That's very funny, Daddy. I'm sure this was your idea. You still think you can get me to move back down here, don't you? Rhoda, 
We don't want you to move back down here. That's the last thing we want. I guarantee you get in the way and screw the whole thing up. We just wanted you to know. We decided that was only fair. And besides, there are some arrangements that have to be made for you and for us. It's a very tricky situation because he is not ill at all, let alone terminal. So that kind of situation comes up. Of course, in Amour, that was a little different story, but he was not ill, she was terminal. Uh, But there are a lot of couples who die together, have died together in Switzerland, in Dignitas. There are several places in Switzerland where foreigners can get help to die. So that's another big question, you know, couples that have lived together all their lives, practically, as all their adult lives, who want to die together. And there's no provision for that, unless they both happen to be terminally ill, mentally competent, can qualify under the End of Life Option Act. But I've never heard of them, anybody doing that. Well, you brought up a more again. And one of the things about that, too, is there is that level of it being horrific because what you see happen to the wife in terms of her losing her, basically her sense of identity as she has these multiple strokes. But while it's horrific in the sense of the decisions her husband has to make about her end of life, it's also like one of the most tender and touching love stories because... Like, he has to make all these choices after she's no longer able to make the decisions herself, and it's just the intimacy of their relationship. It's, it, it was really a remarkable film. It was. It was very tender between them, especially the nice life that they had before all this happened. And then the fact that he was her sole caregiver. She had, he had different nurses that he had, and they didn't work out. Yeah. And he got very angry at them the way they treated her and different different things. And what was so shocking, even with all this love, if you remember the first time she tries to climb out a window, he's gone, she's in a wheelchair or something, tries to climb out a window and he catches her. And that's when she says, I don't want to live this way, it's only going to get worse. And he doesn't, won't listen. And then the second time when she refuses the food and says, I want to die, and he slaps her, because he doesn't want to lose her. He doesn't want her to die on his watch or whatever. And that was so shocking. And, of course, after that, she did allow him to feed her. And then finally the ultimate uh, denouement. But keeping her, their daughter out of the scene, you know, daughter never knows what's going on with the mother. And wants the father to do something besides take care of her all by himself. So love makes people do different things and not always the best thing and not always the most transparent thing. Well, because there is that selfish motivation sometimes on the part of a loved one who doesn't want to lose a mother or a child or a parent or something. I uh, wrote (laughs) an article or so, too, for Valentine's Day talking about love and how love can be not always in the other person's best interest. And that's certainly true, I think, in Amour. There was another movie, I think it was an Israeli movie, called Amour without the U, A-M-O-R. It was in the Jewish Film Festival two years ago. And it was about a young woman who has some terrible disease, I think ALS. And she says she wants to die. And because she has made a couple of attempts, she's now in a hospital being watched 24 hours a day. And all her friends and her family know she wants to die. 
and they feel they can't do anything about it. And her old husband or lover or somebody comes back from being out of the country and talks to her. She doesn't ask him for help, but he comes back. I can't remember how she dies. Anyway, he makes sure it happens. Maybe the pillow thing again, I'm not sure. And he leaves town, and everybody knows what happened, and nobody's telling. That's love. You know, that's one form of love. Not to say that all her other family and everything didn't love her, because they wanted her to live, but also they didn't have the courage to do anything about it. So love, you know, takes different forms. Death and facing death is a very serious topic, but there are films that choose to use humor to kind of tackle these issues. Uh, I mean, talking about right to death, Harold and Maude is a, a classic cult film where the young boy is constantly committing like fake suicides to get his mother's attention. And he starts an affair with Ruth Gordon, who's 80 years old or 79 years old. But she decides that she wants to die at 80. I couldn't imagine a lovely farewell. Farewell? Yes, it's my 80th birthday. Well, you're not going anywhere. Are you? Yes, dear. I took the tablets an hour ago. I'll be gone by midnight. What? What a fuss this is. So unnecessary. Don't die, Maud, for Christ's sake. Hell, don't upset yourself so. See, that's one about old age rational suicide. Mm-hmm. She's made, there is, you said about documentaries, there is one called uh, Mademoiselle and the Doctor about a charming woman, very much like Ruth Gordon in Australia, who has made a decision that 80 is it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's shocking to me because I'm very much enjoying life and way over 80. But <laughs> So uh, she goes, uh, Mademoiselle is a French woman, absolutely charming and perfect health, goes to Dr. Philip Nitschke and discusses it with him, and he does believe in rational suicide and gets the medication for her, and she dies, very much like Ruth Gordon did. And um, that was pretty sad, I thought, Harold and Maud, the way he was left, not really understanding why she would want to do this when he loved her so much. Uh, he was totally bereft, as people are who don't know that their loved one wants to die and suddenly they're dead because they hung themselves or like Mm -hmm. Robin Williams. I mean, that was so shocking to all of us without understanding that he apparently had a form of dementia that was making him crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Junior Seau killed himself Mm -hmm. because his brain was all uh, tangled with, uh, uh, what's it called, concussion syndrome or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he shot himself in the heart so that he could... uh, his brain could be autopsied. And that led to this whole uh, investigation about football and brain uh, damage and all this stuff. So, you know, people kill themselves for different reasons, and it's not because they're happy. It's because they're miserable and they're suffering. Even, I mean, I had a good friend who jumped off the Coronado Bridge. I didn't know she was suffering, and I don't know from what. Mm -hmm. And another friend who shot himself, who had everything in the world to live for, but depression is 
a massively suffering thing to have. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have really good treatments for that either sometimes. Or people don't want treatments. So there's a lot of reasons for death being uh, something preferable to uh, living with suffering. But people are desperate. And although the laws are changing, I've been in this movement almost 35 years, I guess, 35 years. And it's been glacial, the changes that allow us to make these choices. And sometimes I think when I go into a small town or talk in some country that doesn't have this litigious atmosphere that we do, that doctors have been doing this probably since Hippocrates. We even know that during Hippocrates' time, that was what doctors did. Even though in Hippocrates' oath, it says, thou shalt not administer poisons or something like that. Uh, It also says they should not take money and they should not teach medical students. You know, they should not do Mm -hmm. surgery and a lot of things in the Hippocrates' oath. But I think there's documentation that during the time of Hippocrates, Doctors did this. They saw a patient with a terminal or chronic, severe chronic illness suffering. Sometimes the family agreed. Sometimes they didn't know. The doctor would come and give them an injection of something, and they would have a peaceful death. But um, that doesn't happen anymore. Doctors don't have the right or the courage or the guts to subject themselves to possibly get entangled with the law. Not all doctors. Some doctors are not breaking the law, but are willing at least to follow the law, the law that we now have in California. But that law is 20 years old. That model is 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And even in Oregon, it's used very rarely. And in Canada, it's not used rarely. In Holland, it's not used rarely. It's a choice that people can make. So we would like to see that law severely altered, enlarged, expanded, liberalized so that not just terminally ill people can Mm -hmm. use it. I mean, the six-month-to-live criterion is not a criterion that's used in Europe or Switzerland or Holland or Belgium. It's uh, how much you're suffering and how long you've been suffering, not how long you have to live. That's a good hospice thing, but it's Mm -hmm. not relevant to whether you should get aid in dying or not, in my opinion. Well, not just my opinion. It's not, not the... The, the criterion in Canada either, although they're trying to make it more clear what is the criterion. Because people have six months to live who aren't suffering, that happens. And people who've been suffering for years and years and years with terrible diseases like ALS, MS, uh, who can't use the law. So, Or people who know what the potential for their quality of life is. I mean, it, like I said, Alzheimer's is the thing that probably terrifies me more than anything. Right. Because you're no longer yourself. Right. Um, and if you know you have that and you know what the prognosis is, it's not like you mentioned, it's not like you know you're terminally ill and have only six months to live, but you know what your future is looking like. And I think the ability to make a decision about like, well, you know, if I get to the point where I can't recognize my loved ones and, you know, I can't be myself, then. But at that, tw- at that time, at that point, you can't do anything right. about it because you're no longer mentally competent. So this advanced directive thing is very much in a state of flux. Even our advanced directives are not legal documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Final Exit Network, our sister organization, national organization, will now accept cases where advanced directives are being ignored or not honored. But those cases don't always succeed in court. 
because it's not a legal document. The POLST, we have the right to have the POLST, which is Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It's a pink uh, document that uh, you can fill out. It's supposed to be when you have a year left to mm-hmm. live. So that's not clear either who can fill that out, but it's a legal document. It has to be signed by a doctor. So uh, until the law changes, and it's so gradual, people are on shaky grounds about even expressing their wishes in advance. But these are slow, <laughs> grindingly slow situations. And in these movies, you see things that are not covered by the law. We have a short movie that's very funny. Well, funny. It's called Relics. I don't know why it's called Relics. Anyway, this young guy is out there in his suit, and he's in the middle of the street shouting about his new vacuum cleaner that does everything. It's such a wonderful thing. And this woman invites him into her house, an older woman. And then her daughter comes and says, get out of here. We don't want to hear about any vacuum cleaners. And the mother says, yes, I do, actually. So why don't you leave, and I'll find out about the vacuum cleaner. And he starts telling her all the miracles that this vacuum cleaner can do, and she says... I've got this helium tank here, and I can't do this. Would you mind hooking me up to the helium tank? I'm going to use it to end my life. <laughs> He's like, what? And she says, my daughter won't help me, and I um, I forget whether she has what illness she has. And so he does it, and he leaves the house, and he's walking down the street, and the daughter comes and finds her mother dead, and she yells after him, who did whatever she yells, and he keeps walking. <laughs> These, I mean, amazing little things, amazing little things that are done. There's a new one now. I haven't seen it yet, actually, of a husband and wife who I think die together using the Oregon law. Uh, I mean, this is a concern. We showed an Indian movie, Guzarish. When I was in India, this is a funny story, when I was in India, I was in some small town or something. My daughter and I were shopping with a, this guide, young man who was our guide. And he disappeared for a few minutes, and he came back, and he said to me, you're interested in the Right to Die movement, aren't you? And I said, what? He said, well, I've got your name here. I Googled you. and <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes. He said, well, you probably would like some something. I can get you something. I said, great, good, get me something. He said, it'll cost about $20, and my friend will be here. Uh, in about an hour. And you have to see this movie, Guzarish. So I wrote it down. We I ordered it from Amazon, I guess. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. This beautiful, handsome man and this beautiful young woman in this beautiful house that they're living in in Goa, I think it is. And he's a quadriplegic. He was in an accident. He was a circus performer. And somebody sabotaged the trapeze and he fell and became a quadriplegic. But he still does radio things, and he has this radio show, and he asks his audience, he said, I want to die. Do you think I should be able to die? And they all say, understanding his situation, yes, you should be able to. So he and his mother and his nurse uh, go to court, and the court denies his his plea to die. And he comes back, and this woman, his nurse gets rid of her husband and decides to marry him, and she says, um, I'll help you. And they have this wedding, <laughs> and his friends all come, and that's the end of it. Now, you mentioned that kind of the right-to-die movement is something that's relatively recent in 
our history in terms of passing laws and things. But there are some older films that have raised questions about is killing a mercy killing or is a killing justified possibly? I, I remember I, I read about um, an act of murder. From oh, that's wonderful. 1948. Yeah, we showed that. I love that movie, Frederick March. You said you were opposed to mercy killing, Walter. Why? Why? Because there are 10,000 laboratories working at this minute all over the world. What is incurable today is curable next Wednesday. Six months from now, it's months, six years. Meanwhile, Kathy was in agony. What would you have done? I don't know, Calvin. It doesn't matter. It's all over now. There's no point in torturing yourself. While we were driving through the rain, I looked at Kathy. She was asleep. I said to myself, now she has no pain. She's at peace for the moment. I knew then I didn't want her ever to have pain again. I was sure it was the only thing to do. And I was right, Walter. I was right, wasn't I? And that deals with the the idea of somebody committing a mercy killing and, and being brought to court about it. Well, he brought himself to yes. court, turned himself in and said, I helped my wife die. And it turns out... And he's a judge. He's a judge. He showed himself no mercy at all. Turns out she had taken the medication herself. Oh, that's a marvelous movie. But that You're right. No, feels kind of early yeah. in, in terms of the discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think... I don't know when this whole thing started, but that is... That's your right. I think 48. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every once in a while, there's a whole explosion of <laughs> of media coverage of the subject. Right now, I would say it's minimal. And we have the law. When the law changed, there was a lot of coverage. And now this recedes into the background, and you know people don't think about it anymore. Because it's not easy. I mean, we are now having death over draft. We're having beer places where you can come and drink beer and do your advanced directive or death over dessert or where I met you, Beth, was death over dinner. <laughs> so does this feel like progress to you? Yes, progress. <laughs> it's progress. I mean, I live in a retirement community where it's never discussed. <clears throat> we have our own little end-of-life discussion group, which we can't really make public because they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's, and everybody is there to die, you know, so... It's very strange, and people would like more information. And they come to me and say, well, how do you really do it? And I say, if, I, if whatever I know we do in public meetings, and if you would come to our public meetings, maybe you would find out. But in a word, it's not easy. So, you know, and people say, well, I know you have the Hemlock Society, and I'll join when I really need it. <laughs> no. <laughs> or we won't have it. You know, it's, we can't just wait for people to be dying to join us. So. And the well, same and thing with advanced point, directives. Yeah, and your whole point really is is that you want to reach a point with the law where people have legal rights as to how they can end their lives. That well, it's not. I want to expand the law, mm-hmm. but I want people to know what the rights they have now. And there mm-hmm. are lots of them, lots of them. Mm-hmm. And we try to tell people about refusing food and fluids. Mm-hmm. That, of course, became legal in 1990 with the Cruzan decision, but um, it's questionable whether that's a great way to go. There's a yeah. movie about that. 
uh, this doctor in Colorado made a movie of his own death. And we will show that when we talk about VSET. It's called Voluntary Stopping Eating and Drinking. Mm-hmm. And we'll show that. We've showed that before, but we'll show it again and probably do that four months from now because we're now talking about all the different ways to die. So the last meeting we had was on the nitrogen method through Final Exit Network, and now we're going to talk about, again, the End of Life Option Act and how a doctor actually does it, and then probably talk about VSED, Voluntary Stopping Eating and Drinking, and then um, talk about um, dementia and what the options are. So if somebody does want to come to your meetings or become a board member, where can they find information about you? So our website, if you just Google Hemlock Society of San Diego, you'll find us. The website is hemlocksocietysandiego.org. And we have a lot of information on our website. So it's an ongoing process and should be because more of us are getting older. More of us are dying prolonged and sometimes agonizing deaths. And as you say, we can be kept alive indefinitely, practically. Hospice is great. Palliative care is great. But some people are ready to check out. And we don't get a lot of cooperation, I'm sorry to say, from hospice and palliative care. They feel that they can make somebody comfortable up until the very last breath. And we think people should have a right to not live till the last breath. Well, and then that also raises issues of money because it costs people a lot of money to do that. And those institutions then make money off of prolonging those lives. I mean, they're so, right. it's so complicated. <laughs> complicated. It is. Well, I've always found, too, or not always, but more recently especially, that uh, there's a number of zombie films <laughs> that, to me, kind of encapsulate my fear of Alzheimer's <laughs> because it's you look like yourself, essentially. You're still in your body, but you no longer have control of what you do. You no longer have your own identity. You have no longer have... And then your loved ones face this choice of, like, do you kill the zombie version of you or do you hope that there's... <laughs> like, to me, it, it encapsulates some of that fear and it brings up kind of these um, ideas about death and dying that are in a very different way than most of the films you've talked about. <laughs> I always thought zombies had free will and... and- were um, mentally competent and, mm. and made decisions to do what they did. And well, it, it, it depends on which zombie films you're seeing. I see. But uh, there's a lot of them where they, they basically descend into kind of an animalistic form. or But basically it's a sense of, uh, you know, you no longer have control. You no longer are yourself. But now what's interesting is there's a whole spate of these zombie films that are taking, it's what we call the self-aware zombie. So it's a zombie (laughs) who knows that they're dead. And um, it's trying to give you the perspective of what it is to be a zombie. And so it's interesting because it's kind of dealing with this notion of the fear of the other, but it's also dealing with the sense of like, you know, if, if you're aware that you're out there eating people and can't control yourself, is that an existence you really want, and you know, or you know, but oh, so or, we need a right to die for zombies. Is yes, that what exactly, uh, exactly. <laughs> Euthanasia, like if you're a zombie, you should have the right to choose whether you are. And do they? No, you really have very little choice oh, and <laughs> very oh. little cognizance. God, maybe we'll incorporate that in our bylaws. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming out. And talking about these Right to Die films and about the Hemlock Society, I mean, I I think what you guys are doing is great. It's something that I've always been interested in, as I said, because 
you know, I fear certain things at the end of my life, which I want to be able to have a choice about. And so, you know, this is something I feel is really important. Well, we have a lot more control over these things than we think we do Mm -hmm. because of the legal changes that have happened very, very slowly, but they have happened. And so that's what we're trying to do is educate people about what those options are and prepare them and help prepare families to know what people want. But having the conversation is really important. I don't know any films that show that, but there should be some. Well, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you, Beth, for your interest. Thanks for listening to another edition of KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I appreciate the reviews people have been leaving on iTunes. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or recommend it to a friend. Coming up soon, we'll have another edition of Real Science, where we get actual scientists to talk about the science in films with some surprising results. There's like a fundamental buy or a conceit that every movie gets, right? And uh, you get one crazy, wacky thing. Any movie can have one crazy, wacky thing, right? The Matrix, the, 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 the conceit is that we're all living in a simulated reality. Okay, fine, we can accept that. And in Limitless, it's we only use 10% of our brains. So as a scientist, I might kind of roll my eyes at that, but I say, okay, you get the, you get the one wacky, not true thing. And that's, a, that's all any movie gets, though. Cinema Junkie comes out every other Friday, or at least I try to keep to that schedule. Consider going back through the archives to check out some earlier shows on things like Blaxploitation, Godzilla, Zombies, and Hitchcock. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. And since we started the show with Monty Python, here's a little bit of Monty Python to go out with. Some things in life are bad, they can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing Ain't always look on the bright side of life Come on! Always look on the bright side of life It's quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance, anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. piece of shit when you look at it life's a laugh and death's a joke it's true you'll see it's all a show keep them laughing as you go just remember that the last laugh is on you and always look on the bright